Welcome to the Pete Primo Show. It is episode 100. And I am here with one of my favorite sales authority figures in the entire world, Carson V. Hetty. And he is amazing. I'm going to get a little bit more in depth with a little bit more of an introduction. But first, I just want to pay the bills. What are you doing if you haven't already bought my book, Sell a Million? If you own a furniture or mattress store, hurry up, go to Amazon and buy 101 tips for furniture and mattress store owners to sell another million this year. And I want to thank my friends for their sponsorship at the Mattress Industry Network. If you are in the mattress industry, we want you in this free Facebook group. Join this group now. All you have to do is scan that barcode that you see if you're watching the video. and. Thank you, Chris. And if you uh, have not joined yet and you want to learn how to uh, network in this industry, how to advertise in this industry, how to display better, what brands are the best? If you want to learn how to build, market, and sell and succeed in the mattress business, come on in. We want you. It is a group run by mattress retailers for the benefit of the entire industry. So come on in. And thank you, Steve, for your sponsorship. I appreciate you and everything you do. Let's bring Carson on. Carson, I could go on and on with this introduction. I'm just going to say this. If you don't know who Carson is and you're in sales, you need to know who Carson is. Uh, Not only is he the managing director of health solutions for, for the U.S. for Microsoft, but he's the author of Birth of a Salesman. The Salesman Against the World, Salesman on Fire, A Salesman Forever, and whatever else he writes next, whatever it is, you should be listening to it. Carson, welcome to the show. Pete, so good to be with you as always, my friend, and congratulations on the uh, milestone episode. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you could be part of it, and uh, I, I just have to say one thing. Um, Chris might be a little bit surprised by this because he does not know. I would not be doing my 100th episode of the Pete Primo Show without Chris. Chris has been the backbone of this operation. I do not have the bandwidth or the time to do it any other way other than to have a super great producer who does everything behind the scenes for me to make us look the best that we can look and who does all the stuff that I used to do on my first podcast, which was about 33, 34 episodes before I gave up. So thank you, Chris. And anybody that needs a producer uh, for a podcast, get in touch with my friend, Chris Stone. The The only fault that he has is he's a Michigan Wolverine fan. Other than that, he's absolutely perfect. I, I knew you would pop on and say, go blue. Hey, listen, I, I wish you guys all the luck in the world. I'm amazed that we're even in the playoffs at this point. So we got, we just got to do one little small thing and that's beat Georgia. So we'll, 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 we'll see if uh, we get reunited at the end. That would be something else though, if that happened, but I wouldn't bet money on that one. Guy Danes, thank you so much uh, for joining us. On the hundredth uh, episode, you got any questions for Carson? I know. 
Yep. We have uh, Guy Danes joining us, and he is wishing us well for our 100th episode. And thank you so much. So, Carson, I'm going to get this started because I have a lot of questions. You have been a voice of reason out there. When I start to hear people pit one against the other, social selling, no, you got to pick up the phone. Why can't we be both? Why, why can't we be both? You seem to me to have your hand around it the best. And, and, you know, you are so in tune with the fundamentals of selling. And yet you use social media better than anybody I've ever seen. What's your take? Pete, you're too kind. Um, You know, first off, we can do both. And I think it's, you know, you can almost compare it to our politics, right? There's always going to be different vantage points of how sales could and should be done. Um, But there's a lot of right answers. Uh, There's a lot of ways to get from where you start to where you want to go. And the reason for that is because your audience, uh, your audience is always going to be different. They're going to have their own unique nuances, whether you're working in a specific industry, uh, whether you have a specific niche solution or set of solutions, or you have new products that are going to market or new ways that you can partner with your customer. Uh, these things are going to change across time. And I, I even hesitate. I hesitate to call it social selling typically because I think a lot of times, just like selling, these words get misnomers. Um, you know, a lot of people hear social selling, you know, they may say things like, well, you know, we tried that. It didn't work. And their connotation of social selling might be, you know, hey, we, we tinkered with different types of posts on LinkedIn or other social platforms. We, um, you know, tried to reach out to people in a specific way. I, I made comments or I liked people's posts and they didn't send me a PO. And so it doesn't work. But really, social selling is just selling. And selling is everything that we do, every tool we use, every resource we leverage in order to invest in and create meaningful, authentic relationships in our quest to become the trusted advisor. That's it. Mm-hmm. One of the most interesting things, I wanted to unpack this a little bit. Um, I've been a VP of sales twice before I formed my own sales company. I'd always tell my reps, you know, you have to earn the right to be in front of a prospect. There's work that needs to be done and it needs to be done well. It needs to be done thoroughly. And if you beat your competition behind the scenes, getting intel, you're getting much closer. Now, the only thing that you can't flub up is a sales conversation, which is huge. But getting to the sales conversation, the admittance to be allowed into that conversation with a prospect for me is that I have done all my intel. And that includes using all means available. That means going into the store. That means uh, going into all the platforms of social media to find out what is this dude or dudette all about? What what are their favorite things? What what do they hate? What what do they love? What charities do they support? You should know all these things. And I thought I would just dive into that a little bit and let you kind of share some of your wisdom. It's beautiful, Pete. You, you nailed it. Um... 
I, I wouldn't ever discriminate against any possible way that I could unlock a door that is previously closed to me. And that's the most important thing that we can do is establish that meeting. Nothing happens before we get in the room. Um, we do need to execute at all steps, but we can't start selling a product or visualizing the close or thinking about overcoming objections before we're even in the room. And I think that's where a lot of sellers make some initial missteps is they think that, oh, hey, I'll just show up or I'll make a call or I'll, I'll walk in the door or I'll leverage my social media or I'll send an email. Um, but I start out on the wrong foot because I start talking about things that I think are going to be relevant to them uh, from my solution set. And there's a very fine line between that. Do we want to reach out all of those different ways? Absolutely, yes. Uh, we want to find the ways that we can best find focused and scale ways to engage our target audience, but also showing up with unique perspective, with a unique vantage point, and seeking to serve with value. That's it. If we don't show up with any value or any unique differentiator as far as why somebody should talk to us, we're not going to advance throughout the sales cycle. And you said something else super important there, Pete, that I want to make sure we, we double down on is that at our fingertips is all of this information. Information is still the greatest commodity. And so that ability to go out and stay at the pulse of what matters in the industry you're working in, stay at the pulse of what matters to your customer. And then also as you have conversations with them, you're going to continue to glean more and more information. See, some of the best relationships that I've ever formed were actually a byproduct of my attempt to create a groundswell at that organization. I can't control who's going to react and respond to my outreach or my attempts to create dialogue. However, what I do after I have those conversations is what matters a great deal as well, because I can often parlay a great conversation with an executive or with someone else who's maybe an influencer of an influencer. I can often parlay that information into other discussions in the business. And now I've nurtured more relationships there. I am earning that right to be a trusted advisor. And then what I do from there, being communicative, being transparent, helping them understand and navigate the waters of how we've helped customers in similar situations previously, all of those things matter. But you've got to earn the right to be at the table first. That's that's great. I want to just kind of leverage this over into um, in, into a retailer who owns a store. And so you may not be a big fan of Facebook. You might love it. You might hate it. It doesn't matter. It's a way to communicate with your customer and to serve your customer. And one of the things that I love when I hear people say it, and there's a few people out there saying it, the last place I heard it was Russell Bronson. And he said, don't be used by social media. Use social media to build your business. Nobody needs to know your opinion on every cotton-picking little thing. Uh, what people need to know is, where is your heart? Are, are you going to serve them well? Can they trust you? Can they trust your business? And so that, you know, that, that little dialogue that me and Carson just had was really, really great for a sales rep, but it's also applies to you as a store owner. Be where your customers are. Um, 
as a 1099 rep, I used to ask one of my VPs of sales, like, do I need to go to market? And he would say, Pete, be where you can be the most productive. And I would say that to you as a store owner. And I'd also tell the sales reps that listen to this, be where you're most productive. And that includes social media, guys and gals. Wherever, some social media platforms are better than others for certain businesses in certain areas of the country. You've kind of got to figure that out as you go. Um, so here's something interesting, Carson, that I was thinking about. So I'm, this goes, ties into that thought that I had every time I go on LinkedIn, I see you and me and you were commenting on a post and, and I said, Hey, you got to come on the show. And you said, of course I will. And, and you know, this is your second time on and, and I appreciate. Uh, you making the time because I know you're super busy. But Carson, you have a brand and I want store owners and I want sales reps and I want sales professionals that work at retail to understand you need to develop your brand. And that that is different than just your store's brand. You need to be a brand in and of yourself. It doesn't matter if you sell B2B or you sell B2C. What say you, Carson, who's probably the best I've seen at that? Beautifully said. And I don't purport to really um, know all of what there is to know around building a brand, um, but I'm happy to share some of the things that I've learned. And I think some of the keys are, it's all about progress over perfect for starters. And there was a great question that uh, the guy posted as well that I absolutely want to address because I get asked that a lot. Um, and so let me talk a little bit about some of the fundamentals, what I've learned about brand. And I think it's important to point out too that a lot of these things for me started over a decade ago. So I worked for a very large organization and then I worked for three very small organizations. And at one of those, I actually began to leverage social media in order to build brand, not only for myself, because I had written a book um, at the time and uh, was working to market that, uh, but also because I was working at a small consultant firm and I was working to try to build community around what we were doing. And uh, I did that again at the next small firm that I worked at and then at another small firm that I worked at. And that's where I started leveraging a lot of different social tools to start creating uh, community around whatever it was that I was trying to do at the time. So. Whether it was working for a small consultant firm or a small retail organization, which I worked at, uh, tw two of those actually, in fact, um, in between two very behemoth organizations, um, all that time I spent leveraging all the tools at my disposal, exploring some of the different, uh, different ways of doing that. Um, ironically, you know, I was even on a conversation to your point earlier, Pete, it's on a conversation about maybe a month or two ago. And one of the people I was talking about was talking about TikTok and uh, dabbling with TikTok. I knew nothing about it except for, you know, my kid does dances on there every once in a while, right? So um, I was like, well, maybe I'm not cut out for that, but let's try it. And so I uh, got out there, started creating some content and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of followers just over the course of, you know, several weeks of putting out content, um, leveraging different mediums. And so my advice to you is think of yourself, you know, at the end of the day, you are a brand and you will ultimately sell yourself in uh, any number of ways throughout the course of your career. Um, it's 
far and far less common now to spend the entirety of your career with one organization. Um, I thought I would do this years ago, and uh, that was not the case. You know, the fates had a different path for me. Um, but I found myself after working at one large organization and being out of work twice, I was laid off twice in the course of a two-year span through no fault of my own, uh, but I realized I had no network. I realized that I did not have the network that could create the relationship synergy that I was going to need in order to have a brand. So you can control two real things in that, in that uh, equation. You can control uh, the relationships that you work to create and nurture. Um, you can also control some elements of your reputation. And frankly, that's a lot of what branding is about. I had a mentor a couple of years ago tell me, your network is your net worth. And these are things that I didn't realize years ago when I was laid off as a director of sales. And I thought my resume and my results would get me in very easily somewhere else. I was wrong. However, over time, creation of content, creation of reputation, a lot of inputs into that reputation, a lot of meaningful dialogue and engagement with people on social to create relationships. Just like we have right here. Pete and I have never met in person. But yeah, we've done multiple shows together and we talk pretty frequently on social media um, as a result. And I would consider him a friend. That doesn't exist without some of these inputs. So it's relationships, but it's also that how are you interacting and engaging with your audience? I've gone so far as to become an accidental podcast host myself. I've done close to 60 episodes completely not intending to be a podcast host where I've even interviewed executives that work at the customer organizations that I'm working with right now in order to create business with. The last thing I will say that kind of goes back to Guy's question, and we can certainly dive even more into this, is it is a great point that you're going to work in different organizations over time, your solutions will be different, and your approach or the mediums that you use might be different. But even at a large organization, believe it or not, not every customer wants to talk to you. And not every line of business wants to talk to you either. So even at my current organization, I'm still beholden uh, to spending a lot of time with IT and procurement. Uh, but yet for meaningful partnership, we often need relationships in other lines of business that we don't necessarily already have. So I still do a lot of prospecting to create relationships. Uh, that comes with its own inherent challenges because they're not used to working with me or my organization in that capacity. So my brand is very important because, trust me, all of the customers that do business with us or me are going to research me before they engage in dialogue, most likely. So I have to be very prepared for that. I have to be very uh, intentional about my brand. And I also have to be intentional about my brand because I never know where and how I may need to use it in the future. That's, uh, you, you know, it reminds me of uh, Jeffrey Gittimer. It's not who you know, it's who knows you. So I would let, never argue with the king of sales. I would not either. I would not. I always felt, I always felt like I wanted to be the court jester of sales. If Jeffrey Gettemer could be the king, I want to be the court jester. There you go. There you go. Here's a question from Guy Danes. With working in the two different industries, one being a big brand and one smaller, did your mindset change or did you have the dis self-discipline not to let your mindset slip? Kyle Danes. Thanks, Kyle. Yeah, it's a lovely question. Um, here's the interesting thought is uh, no matter what, you know, we, we as sellers, I consider myself a student. I owe sales a lot. I even met my wife in a sales role 
long time ago, 16 years ago. Okay. Um, so I owe sales a lot, uh, puts food on my table. Um, but it's, it's, I look at it like being an athlete or being a, uh, an actor. You know, you transition into each of these roles very differently and you have to approach them often from pl- similar places, but understanding that the, you know, to use the athletic metaphor, the playing field looks completely different. Um, so you have to really understand the lay of the land. So I would say my mindset was very much like, okay, you know, here's my set of blocks. How do I build the masterpiece here? Or here's my blank canvas with paints. How do I, you know, craft the, uh, the Van Gogh? Um, I think that's the key from my vantage points where I always look at what are all the tools in the tool bag? And if anything, I'm just resourceful. I've spent a lot of time in telecommunications, advertising, retail, consulting, and the last several years in technology where I had zero business being. But in all of those situations, I approached it with the same mindset of, okay, what's at my disposal? Who are the people that I'm going to need in the boat with me from the customer organizations, from partners, from my colleagues? What are the resources at my disposal? What's the value that I bring to bear? What's the story that I have to tell? And whether that was just me selling at a small consultant firm where I was the value, you know, I was doing coaching and, and uh, training for sales organizations or when I was in a retail organization and, you know, often in retail, a lot of variables can be very similar. You know, I worked in a wireless industry for a while. And so a lot of the things would be very similar, but. I was buying people out of contracts before that was a thing because I would always look at what's the blocker? Where are we blocked? What are the biggest objections that we're facing? Does it make sense for me to create a relationship here? What are my margins? Know all of those variables. And so we started looking at where we could, you know, onboard folks. A lot of the, the money in that industry was being made at the time on some of the accessories. And so I just got to win the relationship, win the business. But in, technology or consulting, all of the parameters are very different. But I think you come in with that mindset of how do I be resourceful? What are, and to Pete's earlier point, where's my audience hanging out? How do I engage them? I remember working at a small retail store and uh, creating a Twitter page and using it to engage folks. I was following followers of people that were following similar pages. And then we would message them and invite them to events and try to build community around what we were doing. Um, it wasn't trying to sell them anything. It was just trying to get them to come out and meet the team. And then we could engage. We could figure out where people were. And we were wildly successful. So um, no matter which situation you're in, take a look at the variables, the parameters, understand what are the controllables that you control, what are the resources at your disposal, know those things ins and out, and just be a student of selling. And if you do that and... You keep learning. You've got that growth mindset. Uh, you can be very successful throughout a long career in sales. So, Kyle, the answer is no. He did not let his mindset slip. And this flexible, this flexible can-do mindset is something that I find consistent through all high performers. It, it it's okay, this is what I'm working with. This is the goal. How do I get there? And that really ties back into Carson. 
you started to build your personal brand. You started a leverage community. Why? Because you, you, you need to create community to help that small consultant firm thrive. Right? So that's being resourceful. So that's just ties right back into that. One of the things that drives me a little bit crazy, Carson, is when I hear arguments about, you know, do we use artificial intelligence? Do we not? Uh, do we embrace every new technology? Do we not? Uh, or do we sell from the heart? And to me, it's, it's false. It's, it, it's like, yes, 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 and yes. And you epitomize somebody who sells from the heart and their head and embraces everything that can help him get the job done. What say you? You're too kind, Pete. And I think you hit on something really important here is that there is no just right or wrong answer. I know that there's a lot of um, highly charged, very passionate opinions that are out there about selling and, and frankly, anything. Um, but I think the key element is anything that makes me show up better, be more valuable to a potential client, know more, these things are all good. So I'll give you an example. You, you mentioned AI. I started uh, some work recently as a strategic advisor for Humantic AI, who uh, leverages personality AI to arm you with potentially better insights when you're reaching out to a potential client. Does that mean I can't reach out to the client in a way that is authentic and meaningful? Of course not. It, it arms me with ways that actually helps me show up better and maybe gives me some insights so that I can forge a better relationship. Uh, if somebody's buying style, is the exact opposite of my selling style. Is it wrong for me to know that going in based on what's out there from a social perspective? Ergo, you mentioned earlier, one of the things that's really important when we're trying to build a relationship with a customer is understanding all the things that they're passionate about. What are the causes that they care about? You know, sports teams maybe that they enjoy all the way to, you know, who they donate their dollars to and, you know, where they volunteer their time. These things are very important. If I see someone who has a very similar area of passion than what I have, then of course I would want to uh, break bread with them in that capacity. See, I think the difference is we shouldn't show up looking to sell. We should show up looking to add value and build a relationship, build a dialogue. And if there's nothing to be done there, then we part as friends. I've had plenty of times where I've actually recommended competitors to my customers because I wasn't the right fit at that time. And if I try to cram a solution down their throat, how in the world am I going to end up being the trusted advisor? So I say absolutely investigate and explore every single tool that's out there. I've had some people tell me, oh, this tool, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I start using it. And I'm like, I don't know that I necessarily see it, but I like using this for this reason. You're going to gravitate toward what tools are in your tool bag. You know, it's like, a, it's like your, your golf clubs, you get 14 of them, you got to pick them and you're, you're not going to hit your five iron the same way I am. So you've got to figure out what tools to use in certain situations, but all of it has to be at the heart of showing up to serve, being transparent and communicative 
and forming meaningful, authentic relationships. If you do that, you're going to find success, period. Yeah. And I love what you, what you said. And I, I want, I just want to unpack this just a little bit because it's really super important when we're getting oh. mindset questions left and right these days. All the pressure and all the things that we put on ourselves as salespeople to make a sale that are counterproductive go away once you get your heart in the right place. And your heart in the right place is, I'm showing up to discover, I'm showing up to serve. And if then there is an opportunity for us, a fit for us to do business, then we'll pursue that. But I need to show up with my head and my heart in the right place. And my head and my heart in the right place is I want to fully learn as much as I can about this business and about this person that's in front of me and how can I add value. And if you just do that, the sales will eventually take care of themselves as long as you have certain other skills. But 90% of the stuff that happens in sales that's bad, it all happens early and it happens because our heart and our brain is not synced up in the right place. I'm sorry, I'm stealing the show. No, you Go nailed ahead. it. It's gold. You nailed it. Um, I want to say hi to my friend, Pat Tenney, who just popped up in the chat, our mutual friend, Pat. Um, Patrick, a- thank you for being here. Books. Yes. Learned a lot from Mr. Tenney's books. And um, I have a great story about how we first connected. I mean, he just reached out to me one day and uh, just said, I love what you're doing out there. And see, this is another benefit of branding is you get to meet people globally that you never would have met otherwise. And then they become your friends. And, uh, you know, I love learning from Pat and, uh, you know, just through our dialogue and, and his books. And what you just said, Pete, is so important because here's the thing. Where bad things happen in customer relationships or in sales is when we come from a bad place, when we come from a place of desperation, when we get away from the fundamentals. And, you know, look, we all have scenarios in the sales realm that don't go the way we want them to do. Uh, I work with a team today and I have people on my team that I have to coach in tough situations where it's like, you know, hey, I'm under pressure to do this. I know I've got to do that. I don't feel this situation is right. And I tell my team in these cases, I'm like, sometimes you got to shrink your bubble down to one. And this is true of life. You got to shrink your bubble down to one and you got to stay true to your fundamentals. What do we get paid to do? We get paid to be an evangelist of our brand and a a customer-obsessed advocate of your customer. Mm. Mm. That's so good. If you do that, what's the right answer? And guess what? Everything becomes clear at that point. You're going to have a lot of challenging scenarios. If you have a long, successful career, if you're blessed to have a long career in sales, you're going to come up against some challenges. You're going to come up against things you never saw coming. Um, I've had a lot of experiences that I didn't anticipate in my sales career. But I will tell you that that's what helped me every time. Shrink my bubble to one and be very purposeful about what I do next. That's great advice. So it's halftime. It's actually beyond halftime. So I'm going to read quickly my chapter 44 and then I want to get your thoughts on it. So for those of you 
out there that have my book already, go to page 69. Nicole, Scott, Wanda, I know you're watching. Create systems. This is one of those strategies entire books have been written about. While I don't have that kind of space, if I can simply get you thinking differently, I've accomplished my goal. According to the dictionary, a term is any, a system is any formulated regular or special method of procedure. If your business and specifically in your marketing, you need to create systems, ways of doing things in your business that happen over and over again with or without you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, rain or shine. When this happens, you have a system that is working for you all the time. You need to have a lead generation system that captures qualified prospects information and follows up with them with specific marketing sequences. You need to have a new customer system. You need to have a lost customer system. There are just a few, these are just a few of the marketing systems you need in your business, which are typically built with software systems like a CRM. And traditionally, face-to-face and traditional face-to-face interactions. Look at your business and determine what you can systemize and automate and then do it. Because the more you automate, the more you can spend time on the things that really matter. So you need a selling system. You need a, a system for your ops. And you need a systems for service. Your service should never be left to chance, ever. This is me. This isn't in the book. So what are your thoughts, Carson? Sales is about peoples and process, about relationships and resources. You have to have balance to both. And the dynamic of both are going to change over time. But I love how you articulated that, Pete, because you have to have a foundation. You have to have a system. You have to have a a mechanism uh, by which you have intake, by which you have engagement, by which you have consistency on execution of all these key fundamental processes. And here's the thing. We were just talking about how sometimes you have to shrink your bubble to one and really uh, you know, stay focused on what that next step is. A lot of times your processes are going to dictate these things, but where we get results that we don't anticipate or want is often where perhaps we've strayed from the process or where we've looked for a way to do something outside of the established process. Because ultimately, these processes, these systems, they're created with the customer in mind, with the customer at the heart, with the employees at the pulse of this thing. Um, you know, I can tell you multiple stories about you know how I've taken over operations or teams in the past, and I didn't come in to drastically change things. You know, there was a system in place, right? It wasn't working at the time, but let's collectively, not me, not not just you know, it's not a dictatorship. Let's collectively look at these things. What's the out? What are the outcomes that we're seeking to find? Right? Mm-hmm. Where are we not getting? the results from a metric perspective that we need and what tweaks, not massive overhaul, not massive changes, but what tweaks to the processes can we make in order to potentially shift the odds in our favor and uh, drive better results from a metrics perspective. So systems are critical. And the more that you can, to your point, automate uh, so that you can prioritize the things that matter most, which is the relationships, relationships with people you work with, that work for you, your partners, your customers, all of those things matter. 
the more time you can free up in order to do that, the better. That's, uh, I couldn't agree any, any more, Carson. Uh, relationships are the, the most important thing that we ever do, whether we're well, in a sales role or whether we're in a management role. The most important things that we'll ever do is mm-hmm. it'll be one-on-one and it will be with an employee. It will be with a prospect. It will be with a customer. And we'll get behind all of the walls that both of us put up and just lay our cards face up and work on whatever challenges there are in a cohesive way. And I, I love what, what, what you said and, and it bears repeating, you know, coming together to solve the problem together is so powerful and so many times where work we end up in companies and that's not the case and if you just bring that one thing to them teach them how to work as a team man you just made the world a better place you just made that company a better place and and you really can change uh the entire uh the 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 entire orbit of a company and their trajectory by implementing good team play together. All right. Gents, here's a nice question from a Facebook user. I don't know who this is. This, do you want to tell me, Facebook user? I'm going to guess it's Scott Vaughn, but correct me if I'm wrong. Gents, do you think? Negotiation is going to change with this recession. That's Patrick. Any question with negotiations, almost always Patrick. I knew it. It's already changed. And Pat knows the answer to that. It's already changed. Uh, the, the whole foundation for negotiation has shifted. Um, but the, the basics and the fundamentals are still there. You know, it's still important to establish the. Uh, you know, the, the trusted advisor relationship. Uh, it's important to sit in the current state, um, of both parties, um, in this, in this, um, in this shift in the climate, right? But the things that we're talking about are different. So a lot of our customer conversations right now that ultimately are in the negotiation phase. Um, it really comes down to how can we do more with less? Um, everyone is looking at the economic headwinds, making decisions differently. They might be tightening their belt. Uh, they're looking at budgets differently. Uh, they're looking at where costs can be cut. So a lot of the conversations that we have now that might beget uh, relationships that beget deals. And I, because I'm hesitant to say that beget deals. Deals are a byproduct of relationships every time. But where I think the negotiation is really playing into is where we're really truly listening at, and at the pulse of the customer organizations. We understand their priorities, what looks different for them today. And we're helping them optimize costs or helping them open up new revenue streams. And so to be clear, the fundamentals of negotiation are still very similar. You know, those foundations will always be there, uh, where, you know, understanding what matters to the customer, what is the time to value? What is the return on investment? Um, you know, where are we going to ultimately be able to, um, find meaningful ways to go forward together as two organizations? 
Uh, what resources do I have to bring to bear? Where can I invest? Where can I lean in? A lot of those fundamentals are similar, but all of the key components of getting the deal done and the heavier reliance on budgets and where priorities lie and what customers are reporting in their quarterly business reviews and their annual reports, those things become all the more pressing. Pat, I would agree with everything that Carson said. I would add this. And I, I actually wrote it down. So I started off with a blank sheet and I just started writing. But if you could see where it is, those are the two biggies, trust and fear. Without, without trust, you can't overcome the fear piece of it. And there are buyers that we're going to be working with, Patrick, that are fear they are in fear for their company's survival. They're in fear of their job. They live in fear of making a mistake. And whatever we can do to build trust and to eliminate their fear is going to become more. It's going to be, it's going to be the very linchpin upon which the sale falls. Uh, so in our negotiations, we have to understand that we're dealing with buyers who are exceptionally fearful right now. What do you think, Carson? That's it. That's it. Um, in any relationship, it's key to understand the other person's vantage point, what looks like a win to them, how they prioritize things, and frankly, the pressures that are coming down uh, from their leadership. You know, often there are multiple stakeholders that, that touch any potential deal, right? So it's important that we create and foster and nurture relationships with all of those folks. But you're so right, because we live in a time where, you know, there are a lot of tightening of the belt. There's a lot of layoffs. There's a lot of um, hiring freezes, travel freezes. And, you know, it's understanding where, where are they so we can meet them where they are. And if there is, if there is that element of fear, a lot of those conversations that we're having today uh, in the selling realm are about de-risking. How do we de-risk the decision as much as possible or share risk? And so again, the foundation, the fundamentals are the same as they've always been about the relationship, uh, the trust and fear co components. But these are the need of these and the need for focus on these is at a level as high as it's ever been. Yep. I, I agree 100%. Pat, just a little love of the new background, Pete. Uh, that's, hey, thank you for joining us, Steve. Steve Hauk is joining us. Join in late, dang it. Love the new background, Pete. Thank you, sir. Thank you for sponsoring my show. And do you have a question for Carson? While you're doing that, I'm just going to dive into one little, little aspect of what Carson just said to Patrick. Um, we, we develop advocates. Some people call them champions. Um, while we're prospecting, I think those folks are going to need more reassuring. I think they're going to need more coaching, um, more handholding, if you will, um, to get them to move because it's scary for some of these folks. And, uh, going back to my, to the other thing of what changed. 
What say it's you? It's a great point. Um, you know, Pete, it's funny. I, I'm actually, so I'm in the process right now of writing my fifth book. And uh, that was yes. actually, yeah. So that was actually what I was writing about um, this this early morning. So uh, it was just about that, those key influencers that you find in your customer organizations, what I like to call the friendlies. Um, and it's not always in there in, in the customer organization. I mean, it could be a uh, consultant. Um, it could be another partner or vendor that works with them where they perhaps have a better relationship than you do. It's how can you invest and create wins for other people? Uh, but often these, these friendlies are at, closer to the pulse of what's going on. And so the more I invest in those relationships, you know, they will give me valuable intel uh, so I can be a better partner, so I can show up better. Um, but you're right, less and less are they ultimately you know, necessarily the ones who... It's, it's so hard to predict, right? They, nor we, can predict where things are going to head. And that's where a lot of people are uh, making those decisions not to take risks for fear of making the wrong choice. And so I think more and more, while, again, a lot of the parameters in the playing field of sales is the same, you're going to see a lot of different reactions and behaviors and activities during this time. And the things that matter are a little bit different than they once were. Now, Pat Tinney put another lovely question in the chat that I want to bring uh, attention to you here as well, which I think plays into this, right? Sure. Do you find you're looking into more hidden value within your company to show things other suppliers cannot? Yes. And so I've read Pat's books. And one of the key things that I took away from Pat's book, the bonus round, was doing a SWOT analysis of your competition, really understanding who's in there, right? Because if I know, I, maybe I can't go toe-to-toe with a competitor around price, as he points out, or also their great strengths. They may be very strong in certain areas. But if I understand what the competition can't do, what are their opportunities, what are their threats that perhaps I'm better at, that can be an area where I expound and I double down and perhaps I show resources or additional value around willingness to invest, willingness to explore, uh, going down a path with a customer. Anything that you do to invest your time and um, you know, de-risk the decision and also show that you are a trusted advisor as opposed to just being there to get a check signed or get a purchase order, those are the things that are going to go the extra mile. And I will point out this as well. You know, early on in the pandemic, it's very unknown terrain for a lot of people as well. The way we were showing up with customers at that time, frankly, was reaching out and just letting them know that we were available or that we were eager to work through any questions that they might have. Uh, there was pro bono work that, that I was signing off on so that we could do uh, very meaningful projects in the healthcare industry. Um, you know, it was sometimes you get very, very creative in order to invest in a relationship. And the, the degree by which you show your creativity and your willingness to work with people and meet them where they are, even if there's no financial gain or tangible instant gratification, these things go a long, long way. I, I would say, especially when there's no upside for you, um, that's where you really separate yourself from the competition because you're taking it to a place they're unwilling to go. And I've always found that if I can bring the sale to a place where I'm strong and my competitors are weak, I win. Yes. It's that simple. Um, 
I am so excited about book number five. Will you tell me just a little bit about it, please? Sure. Yeah. So, um, my, uh, I, I'm really excited about the, uh, the book cover, honestly. And that's what I, I asked my, my daughter to create the book cover for me. And, um, cause I knew it would be the motivation I need to write it. And so the name of the book is The Show Must Go On. And the reason for this is, look, I've been in sales for 20 plus years. If you've had a long sales career, there's a lot of experiences, ups and downs that you go through. Um, you know, just in the last few years, we've been through a pandemic and we're going through some uh, challenging times now. Um, and I will tell you that uh, the reason that I selected this was because I found in the pandemic, the show that I was listening to the most uh, was The Show Must Go On by Queen. And the reason why was because during some of these tough negotiations that I was going through or challenging scenarios that were unlike anything I'd ever experienced in my sales career, even 20 years into a sales career, I listened to this song and it made me able to get on that next call or do that next conversation or do that next hard thing. See, that's the thing about sales. And you know, you know, if you follow me on uh, social or anything like that, there's a lot of uplifting stuff. And Pete, you and I were talking, uh, you know, before we jumped on here that, you know, sure, every day I'm, I'm out there, I'm posting something, I'm doing this or that, I'm, I'm engaged and involved in a lot of stuff, but it can take its toll. But that's not necessarily the thing that you always see. But that's why this is really personal. It's near and dear to me. It's uh, the show must go on because one way or another, we've got to make that decision to, uh, to keep moving forward and bring our best selves to everything we do. Yeah. And here's something that I'm, I really want everybody that's listening to, to get. The show must go on when you push yourself and you go forward. Do you understand what you're doing for the world? Do you really get it? Because it's not for you. It's for the world. You are setting an example that the show must go on. And when you do it for the world and not for yourself, guess what? Special things start to happen. And that's huge. Getting back to this de-risk in the sale, if you own a mattress store or a furniture store, de-risk in the sale, there's lots of ways to do it. Find a way that you haven't done and try it and see if it helps you close a few more sales and if it if it elevates you and separates you and makes you unique which is stuff that Carson talks about every day do that and see how it works and, and let me know because to me that is is huge there was one other question Steve Hauk thank you for joining us Steve I think the the sharing of risk has been huge in the mattress industry. Who would have thought we would ever need a 365-night sleep trial? Well, here's the reality, Steve. We don't need a 365-night sleep trial. But what I love that Nectar did is they looked at what are most sleep trials. They're 90 days. They're 120 days. And we're just going to blow this thing out. We're out of the park. We're, we're, we're just going to make it so far. And the reality is they probably don't take a lot of beds back from that. And it was very, uh, very creative for that brand to take that posture 
And kudos. I thought it was crazy, but it's successful. They, they continue to do it. They actually back it up. They perform. And my hat is off to anybody who is going after business and trying to be of service to the retail customer, trying to offer creativity and create creative product, creative solutions that help the customer. So anybody that wants to do that, kudos. So we got the name of the book. The show must go on. When, pray tell, can I read a copy? Uh, so I try to be very um, low pressure on myself. So right now it's 2023. <laughs> and I said that last year or this past year, knowing uh, that, you know, look, I got a lot of stuff on my plate. I got a family of five here that uh, is my top priority. And, uh, you know, I've got some, I got a job that pays the bills that I'm very grateful for. So, uh, but I'm I'm working pretty diligently. I'm over 100 pages in, and so uh, I'm confident oh, wow. it'll hit stores in 2023. Yep, that's awesome. Well, I uh, I can't wait. I'm uh, I I will look forward to that. Carson, somebody that watched the show and said, you know what, I like this Carson guy, and I've got a question. I think he might be able to help me. How do they get a hold of you? Yes, so that would be amazing. And first off, let me just say again, congratulations, Pete, on 100 episodes. This is awesome. I'm truly honored and grateful to be a part of this and, and just to spend time with you and uh, continue our dialogue. But um, I definitely, I, I encourage and welcome anyone to reach out. Uh, LinkedIn is a great way. Um, that is probably where I'm most active. So uh, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn, send me a question, happy to engage. Uh, really have been um, overwhelmed by the amazing relationships that I've been able to create as a result of some of the social selling work that I've done over the last decade. Yeah. And this is one of them. I, I mean, it, it's so funny because I had never met Chris, my producer, until the summer. Wow. And it's like, we knew each other. It's like, it was not like anything different than what we always see. So someday I will meet you in person and yes, I will feel like I already know you because I do. Agreed. I think the only thing we can't ever predict is people's height when we meet in person. That's the only thing. Like I, we went to an event this past year and I met a dozen of, you know, dozen people that I talked to pretty much on a daily basis that I'd never met in person. That was really the only thing I couldn't predict is how many people towered above me. And then, uh, you know, some that were a little bit shorter that I could have never predicted. So. Uh, I, I can't wait till today, Pete. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you and uh, have a Merry Christmas. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Thank you. Thank you.